Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. And my guest today is another Ryan, Ryan Gradowski, who is the author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the, the, created the National Populist Movement, and also the author of the National Populist Newsletter, which I was a frequent read, reader of during the campaign last year. I haven't read much since then, but uh, going into the election, I was definitely all up in that and was sending it around to my friends like, okay, here's what he's saying. So it's an honor to have you on today. Yeah, I hope I was pretty accurate. I think I was during the campaign. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the campaign. Well, let's start there. So why did Trump lose? Oh, God. Um, I think that well, the big the the biggest answer is he trusts his entire political team to his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Uh, and I've said this multiple times. Had Ivanka married Tom Brady, Trump would have had a second term in the White House. Um, Jared was a political novice who thought that he was a genius and he thought that he could single-handedly remake the entire map of the United States by himself. Uh, he was the one who perpetuated a lot of his policies, like trying to win over 25% of black voters by giving the platinum plan out and doing criminal justice reform. He really thought that because he was a white person who read the Atlantic, he understood how to get the black vote. Um, that was a big, big problem, big, big part of it. Um, obviously COVID is the second biggest part of it. Had COVID not happened, Trump also probably would have won. The, uh, the way that states handled their reaction to COVID was horrendous. I live in New York. We are not great with counting votes in elections. I think we'd be counting our last election, like six months after election day. Um, nonetheless, and despite New York City being the worst place for COVID early on, nonetheless, we all had to sign our petitions to get our ballot. And we don't have voter ID, we still have to sign. We figured out a way to make everyone sign. Uh, Georgia did not. Georgia being a swing state said, screw it, we're not gonna have signatures. Nevada saying, we're gonna mail a ballot out to everybody if they lived in the state for the last 10 years. Um, those things mattered. Ultimately, I think that loosening and, and making it capable for anyone to vote um, definitely incite a lot of uh, low information voters or voters who don't typically vote in elections to sit there and cast a ballot for Joe Biden. Um, I think that that hurt him for sure. Georgia doing uh, motor voter, excuse me, motor voter, where if you have a driver's license, you can vote. Once again, an idiotic idea. Um, you know, you, you should not that, not that it should be impossible to vote, but you should want to vote. It shouldn't be something where, you know, even in the Roman Republic, um, there were, there were restrictions on voting, even in Greek democracies, there was restrictions on voting. They made it. So they incentivized and galvanized people who, um, you know, voting was to put a picture on their social media to go vote. I think that was a, probably a very, very bad handling of it. And then lastly, and the, most importantly, Trump did not campaign for white Americans. He didn't. He didn't at all. Uh, we had a platinum plan. We had an American plan for Hispanics. When, when on the campaign trail did Trump ever mention non-college educated whites? When did he mention working class whites? When did he talk about the problems facing um, rural America? Where was the plan for... Um, the plan for whites in lower class positions. Where was our trillion dollar plan? Not that I'm, well, not that I'm one of them, but 
Uh, where was their trillion dollar plan? Uh, if you don't give people a reason to vote for you, then they're not necessarily just going to vote for you. So it was an accumulation of all of those problems that really turned out and and crushed him. And, you know, had he won, had he done 0.3 or 0.4% better, he would have won re-election. That's all it was, was 0.4%. But when you lose 2% of your base, which is white men, uh, that's, that, well, that'll do it. <laughs> It was interesting because, anecdotally speaking, um, talking to people down here in Texas, um, there was plenty of them that voted for Trump in 2016 that were just frustrated with Trump. And mm -hmm. I go back to the, the George Floyd situation. So Trump, uh, I'll get the timeline wrong, but it's pretty close here. Floyd was killed on like a Tuesday or Wednesday maybe, and then by Thursday or Friday. Oops, sorry. I don't know what happened. Um, what got a lot of attention was what happened that night uh, that Friday night at the White House and how Trump was tweeting about it and kind of almost antagonizing the protesters. Um, and people pe people that I knew that were Trump supporters didn't realize that he had contacted the Floyd family. All they knew about was his tweeting. And so it, it was weird to see that he gained voters, but yet there was plenty of people who were kind of frustrated with his antics. So let's talk about let's talk about the George Floyd riot. So the Floyd protests start on the Thursday, right? Thursday or Friday outside of the White House. I texted my friends inside the White House and said, when is he going to give a national address? And it get worse and worse. I think it's Friday night now. And he, my friends inside the White House said, who do you want to write the address? I said, what do you mean? He said, there's no one here. I said, what do you mean there's no one here? Jared and Ivanka were away for, I think it was a Jewish holiday. Um, Mark Meadows' daughter was getting married, so he left. Um, uh, Kellyanne was, not, was I think, no longer in the White House, but she wasn't there. It was Stephen Miller, one or two other people, and the di the, the digital guy, Dan, Dan um, Scavino. That was the entire White House, the entire weekend. Entire weekend, there's national, nationwide protests. There's thousands of people outside the White House threatening to burn it to the ground. Um, you, have, you have members of the White House security being hurt and um there's no one there and there's no one there for days and the last thing they say to trump before they all leave is don't say about george floyd they encar they, they pushed him not to say anything so what does he left to do hide in a bunker and tweet law and order over and over and over <laughs> and over again but that is what ha i mean this is the fragile state of that white house and that is how and I mentioned Jared Kushner before, and it's not to hate on him because I don't know him. And I don't wish him any personal ill, but um, he, they inside the White House, inside the inner circles of, of the White House, they used to call Jared the prime minister and Trump the president. <laughs> I mean, that's what, and Jared preferred it that way. Jared knew that that was his nickname and he liked that. Mm -hmm. He thought that he was really running the country and he was a progressive Democrat. I mean, he didn't, he didn't believe that we should be sitting there and stopping these protests from happening. So what happened was, instead of having this squashed the first day, the first night, sending in Marines into Minneapolis the first day to make sure this wasn't a nationwide protest, you had a rolling summer of riots, increased crime, higher murder rates, and a president who was just tweeting the words law and order over and over and over again. Okay, so how do you balance that with, you know, a lot of Republican friends that I know that voted for him twice, believe I've for three times. I never heard him twice in the primary and twice for president. So once in the primary. Okay. So, you know, um, so how do you, 
I'm, I'm, I'm not sure your, your general stance on him, though, but just talking about, so I'm a libertarian. I didn't vote for him either time. Um, that's some things he did I liked, some things he did I didn't like. So um, um, I'm you only vote for him either time, you said? No, I didn't vote for him either time, no. Um, well, when Texas turns blue, we'll be glad that libertarians are fighting for them, their integrity. <laughs> well, we could talk about that in a second. I'll be happy to get there. Uh, we call it Inside the War Room to have good conversation. So if you want to go there, I'd be happy to go there. Um, the problem with what you're saying is that if you look to, to the Trump supporters I know who were you know both both times, you know they kind of believe in this ethos of who Trump was. You know, I remember guys writing, you know, Trump's the boss after they clear out, and Trump's this plain forty chest. Hmm. Now look at what you're saying here. I'm like, okay, he's okay. That what you're telling me is you have someone who's not in control and is of not of is not above average intelligence because anyone watching what's going on can realize this is going to end badly, and then you take how he handled some of the COVID messaging. Um, I've always, I've always struggled because sometimes like when he was dealing with North Korea, I thought how he handled the North Korea stuff was really shrewd, right? He's kind of, he's kind of toying with Kim Jong-un and he goes and meets with him. I liked all that. And then the COVID stuff is like, to me, Trump was very good when things were going well, but he was not the guy when things are going to, when the, when the walls are coming in on you, he really seemed to struggle. That was my assessment. Disagree or agree? Um, I don't think that that's an actual accurate way of doing that. I think that on certain things, Trump had political allies who understood his vision and were able to capable and to pull it, push it out. So like on renegotiating trade deals, Trump had Robert Lighthizer, who was a very, very, uh, a, a, you know, intelligent man, capable, professional able to carry out his vision and was very successful in renegotiating trade deals. Um, you had when when push came to sh shove. And I think um, after I think we had five DHS secretaries, that was the worst department, you know, Chad Wolf, and I was very critical of him, but Chad Wolf was very capable in creating third country agreements um, and and pushing out remain in Mexico. Some people were very, very good at carrying out his vision, but as a whole, they were not. And part of Trump's ability to do stuff at, for a while was because there were so many warring factions inside the White House where he could lean on some group of people to get a large portion of what he wanted done. By the last year of the admin, you have a very based and um, very capable um department inside the administration and ppo hiring very strong people but aside from ppo the white house people's administration the white house is being hired and fired mostly by jared and jared is in almost full control of the white house by that point so what ha what what happens is what jared wants not what trump wants and where they overlap is where when Trump gets something what he wants, it's because him and Jared are overlying agreements. But there have been there were so many times in that admin that Jared and several other people besides Jared just openly said they would meet with Trump. They would say, "Oh, you know, absolutely, absolutely." They would walk out and say, "Ignore him, just don't," because he had no follow up. And also, G Trump hated firing people. Like that's the great irony of Donald Trump is that he yeah. wasn't he wasn't the man from The Apprentice. He hated firing individuals. He had a meeting. This is year two, two and a half 
of the admin. He has a meeting with a bunch of conservative activists, including Jeannie Thomas, uh, wife of, of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and um, many other activists. And he said, how do I have so many bad people leaking against me? And one of the women in there, who I won't say her name, points to Johnny DeStefano, who at the time was, was head of his PPO, his Office of Personnel, and says, it's because of him he hates you, he leaks against you, and he's hiring people who hate you to sabotage you. And Johnny DeStefano starts screaming and cursing, saying, this is a lie, this is a lie, yada, yada, yada. Storms off, goes, calls Maggie Haberman, and leaks the entire conversation. And Maggie Haberman has a, time, a piece in the time, New York Times the next day. Um, Trump knows this. He's made aware by many, many people he trusts. That Johnny DeStefano is a terrible hire. He was John Boehner's former coffee boy who became the head of a major department. And um, we didn't fire him for, I think, like eight more months. And the whole time, Johnny is just, you know, stamping, rubber stamping every bad person you could possibly want in the administration. So that was, I mean, that was the fault of Donald Trump as an executive. I don't think that he understood or cared about the inner workings of how a White House works for a very long time. It wasn't until John McEntee comes in in year four that you see people who are actually loyalists, who actually have a same vision as the president, getting good positions. Um, but for three years, he just either he didn't care, didn't want to care, didn't understand. I don't know what what I don't understand his psyche, but that was the major problem of the administration. Um, you know, take him and compare him to, and I'm just making a bold comparison, but take him and compare him to Ron DeSantos. When Ron DeSantos walked in, and obviously there's different laws between Florida state employees and federal employees, but first thing Ron DeSantos did was fire the Broward uh, County uh, Board of Elections operator who counted all the votes. Remember in Broward in 2018, where these votes were just coming and coming and coming. First thing he does is fire her. Uh, he fired a ton of Rick Scott people out of that, out of the Florida government. Um, and though, even though Rick Scott was a Republican, uh, he immediately knew that he couldn't trust a lot of these people. That was the tight, and I'm not endorsing DeSantis saying he'd be a great president. I don't know, but he instinctively understood how the hiring process was so important to the actual uh, job of working administration. And I've mentioned this in this podcast before. I'll, I'll say it again. John Bolton's book actually talks about this in the context of Rex Tillerson. He talks about this is why Rex Tillerson failed in his opinion was that he didn't go in and clean out the State Department uh, because there's people who have mixed motivations. And I'm no fan of John Bolton, but I thought it was an interesting uh, point that he makes, which is that coming from the private sector into government, you presume that everyone's on your team kind of like it, it would be in the private sector. And that's not the case in government. So that could have been right. No, I didn't read the book. I'm not a huge fan of John Bolton, but I didn't read the book. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it just but John I, Bolton did John Bolton credit. The one thing he did is he did fire a ton of people at the national security sector. He fired a lot of people. Yeah. Um, most did not though. I'm no fan of Bolton. And I think uh, Bolton should read the book himself because <laughs> like some of the things he says, it's like, Man, did you read this? Or did the well, I don't know. If he wrote, I I don't know, but most conservatives who write books don't actually write them. I right. wrote my book, but I don't think I, you know. I have no idea if he wrote it. If he wrote his. All right. So, what's Trump's legacy going to be? You know, he was a very good president, despite all this. I think that. I think that probably. 
I think that probably the most long-term thing that he's going to have is Operation Warp Speed. I mean, Operation Warp Speed is going to create cures for diseases way into the future. I mean, it just is. It's going to, you know, I talk to science people and the fast tracking of the RDNA, which I know is controversial for some people, the RDNA vaccination and that type of medicine. And I'm not a scientist. I'm probably saying this completely wrong, Mm -hmm. but the RDNA um, stuff is going to end up becoming cures for HIV and for cancer and for a lot of other diseases that are um, been plaguing people for a very long time. And I think that that Operation Wars will probably be the long term um, part of his legacy that he should really be proud of. and then, I mean, he was the only president in our lifetime to sit there and get a full grasp on the border for a short time, a bite, but um, he did. Um, his his remain in Mexico policy was the most efficient border policy since Operation Wetback and the Eisenhower administration. His safe third country agreements were brilliantly smart. They were gutted by Joe Biden the first day he came in. Um, I think those are the more positive parts of his, and I mean, he had, he had record breaking job creation and, and, and cutting more regulations from the federal government than any president in history. And also the judges. I mean, we can't forget the judges. He did appoint hundreds and hundreds of federal judges. But the judges is interesting because I was joking the other day, if you're Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett, are you excited to be on the Supreme Court with some of the cases that are coming your way? You know, with all of these COVID lawsuits, like if they take some of these cases, there's going to be some monumental um, decisions coming down. And it could be that Trump's legacy is improved or dramatically hurt. And that, or that's fair or not, that's just kind of how it works with the Right. Well, I think that, I mean, they're breaking it away from the five, four. I mean, people hate on, people hate on, uh, you know, uh, the pre, uh, the hit on Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and, and Barrett for not being so rock solid. But, you know, I would prefer a court where it was, you know, there's, and now it's three, three, three court. It's three conservatives, three liberals, and three people you don't know where, which side they're going to go on. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, I, you know, I, I like Justice Kavanaugh a lot. Amy Cohen Barron, I'm more hesitant about. Um, but we'll see, you know, ultimately how, how they, how they become. But yeah, they, I mean, look, I, there's no way anyone say that John Roberts did not hurt George W. Bush's legacy among conservatives. So he could absolutely be the same way. Okay. So you, you gave me a shot about Texas turning blue, being libertarian. So, <laughs> which is perfectly fine. Um, the, the problem that I have, and, and this is what I ask, I don't, are you, I know you're Republican. Are you conservative or Republican or how would you? I'm a registered, in New York, you could be a registered conservative, registered Republican. Okay. I'm a rep- registered Republican. Okay. So you're not a conservative though. I'm not a registered conservative now. Okay. See, so so when I was a, when I was a Republican, I would consider myself a conservative Republican. Um, um, but I don't know. I never really felt like a there was much representation that worked its way through Congress uh, or the presidency. There's a lot of talk and appeal to that voter base, but that but that the policies never um, were were there. And so, like you talk about Trump with the border, you know, there was a lot of eminent domain talk about to put that wall up and it's like, well, hold on. That doesn't really seem like is if you're a conservative, that's really not where you want is the government taking your land to build a wall um, to keep you in or keep someone else out. And so, uh, or expansion of federal powers, making people work to build ventilators. There's things like that, that the conservatives seem to yield repeatedly. Um, and so that's why I, I said, I'm more, well, so you were against it because of eminent domain for a border wall and making people make ventilators. No, 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 no. I'm just using. I'm just taking a couple. Okay, of but no, but I, I, I highly disagree with that. Like, 
abusing being a Republican in office does not mean you don't use government power for the purpose of, of bettering the United States. There is no question that had Trump actually made a really amazing border wall, a concrete border wall that had an Amtrak train across it. Um, <laughs> I don't care if he stole the land. I don't care about any, I don't care whatsoever. We would be a better country for it. Uh, yes, most cases of imminent domain, like the case in Connecticut where they stole someone's land to make a private sector business that never even happened. That's a horrible use of imminent domain, but all cases of imminent domain, domain are not bad. I mean, we made the international highway system off of imminent domain. We are certainly a better country because I can drive to California. Before that, people couldn't drive across their state, let alone drive across the country. Um, Being able and being willing to use political power to actually get results that better that better people's lives is why you are conservative. You're not a conservative because ultimately you believe everything results in, you know, what establishes the most liberty. You, you know, liberty is great when it's ordered and when it's, um, when, when there is, um, when, when liberty is being a, a, a function of, of, of good people, but liberty in the hands of a lot of people is really, really not great. Um, and the goal of a president is to sit there and say, how do I improve the lives of the people that live here? Uh, a border wall is great. Uh, you know, when ventilators, when COVID was first happening, I mean, you had rolling fears, a lot of among a lot of older Americans that they were going to end up dying because they couldn't get their hands on a ventilator. That's not a non-conservative position. Um, you know, not sitting there and not, you know, I, I would rather somebody who sits there and uses the power to sit there and improve the lives. And I think we, I wish Trump had done a lot more of that. I think we'd be a better country. Um, rather than something like tax cuts, which I guess is more, you know, freedom. And listen, I make good money. I, I, I enjoy a tax cut, but, uh, and that would add to my liberty because I have more freedom with my money. However, um, giving a tax cut to a corporation that makes sure Colin Kaepernick can sell cultural Marxism to children, not really on my priority list of things that I think make this country better. So if your end goal is simply liberty for the case of liberty, I think that there's a lot of conservatives like Russell Kirk who absolutely would say that that's a terrible, terrible idea. Yeah, no, it's not liberty for the sake of liberty. It's that we have a a long history of the executive branch using this justification to do this, which is argued to be the best thing for us. Um, and then the next administration uses that justification to do that. And so it's, it's a never ending cycle of, you know, president does this. And then, the they, you know, so you say the Trump's border wall justification is fine. Um, and then Biden comes in and does something. And then the Republicans go, oh, well, that justification is like, well, they're- but that is that is the ever endless Cox like like you know, cocked Republican answer of we can't do this because imagine if the left did it, the left's already doing it. Oh, every wow. every horrible idea that you're like, oh, no, the left's going to use that. They're already thinking of it like there's no there's no position that the left is not thinking of right now. Left is trying to push in uh, a seven million person amnesty through budget reconciliation. So we couldn't end the filibuster because then they could just end the filibuster. Like these kinds of ideas, I'm not that I'm against ending the filibuster, but I'm not that I'm for ending the filibuster, but the point is, is that Republicans are constantly, well, we can't touch this because if we did this, then the left's gonna do it. They're left, everyone, every one of your political enemies, you have to stop imagining 
that the modern left in America wants to debate you on what Thomas Jefferson and James Madison wrote in the Constitution, although in the Constitution, they don't care. Like they don't, they they don't care. At this point in our nation, you know, whether we like it or not, it is a consolidation of power, and it's a matter of who's getting the political power. It should be the best kinds of people, but there are almost no limitations to that power left anymore. Uh, the the judges certainly are not going to sit there and start reigning in massive amounts of government power. They'll do it on a case-by-case basis, but there's no area where the left is not going to sit there and try to use um, political power to benefit themselves and put themselves in power forever. So the question you have to ask yourself is, who is going to be there to sit there and make sure the people that they vote for them get a better life out of voting for them? And if that means working class, poor people in West Texas who, who died 20 years before the people in Austin because of poor living conditions, opioid epidemic, worse jobs, smoking habits, bad eating, then and, and a president comes in and says, I'm going to use whatever executive power I can to make sure people in East Texas and West Texas and Randy Jackson and Louis Gohmert's district are going to live life longer so that they match Austin, which died you know, 20 years later than them. I don't care really how how they have to sit there and use the power. I don't think that we should be sitting there and worrying about limitations because there is no we're arguing amongst ourselves while the left is getting pure. You know, the left is turning every state into California slowly but surely. So let me ask you this then. You take something like the Patriot Act, which came in under conservative administration. Uh-huh. It, so, I mean, I don't know what, what your stance on it generally. I have no idea. Are you for it? Against- oh, it was a horrible garbage piece of paper. It's everything in Georgia. If, if we have a correct understanding in history, George W. Bush is probably the fifth worst president in the history of the United States. And every statue school and building named after him should be changed to I don't care, Saddam Hussein. Like anything is better than George W. Bush. So I have no, there's no, I did not, I mean, listen, I, I have no reasoning for to sit there and praise Bush whatsoever. He's a horrible, horrible president. And I mean, maybe it would have been the case that Al Gore would have been a better president than George W. Bush. I don't know, but uh, or maybe Bill Clinton could have got a third term. It doesn't matter. But whatever it was, George W. Bush was a horrible, horrible, horrible president of the United States. So the reason I'm, I'm asking is because you, the Patriot Act, which came up under Bush, um, mm-hmm. it, so if you're saying, well, it was lauded by Republicans, um, uh, if you're saying, well, hey, we, we got to do what we got to do, this is what you get. And then when the left gets in power, now they have these expansive powers. And so if you're not arguing with I, yourself, oh, right? I, I agree with what you're going. We do have we do have to do what we want, what we need to do. I agree with that sentiment. However, that doesn't mean you should make bad choices. Like you shouldn't then turn around and say, oh, well, since we have to do what we have to do, let's make bad decisions. If you look at if George W. Bush really cared in the wake of 9-11 saying, how do I make this country safe? If that was really the goal of it and anything was on the table and you read the 9-11 commission, which I cite in my book, they're not listening repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Um, the 9-11 commission thought of, I think, you know, 60 recommendations. Almost none of them are in the Patriot Act. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, uh, what was it? The, uh, the visa that is the entrance exit visa system to know who's coming in the country and who's coming out of the country when they're coming out. If that was made, is that, you know, a, technically a, a, uh, would Thomas Jefferson or a libertarian approve that? Probably not. Ron Paul hated that idea, real, the Real ID Act and all the rest of it. However, that would be really great to know who was in our country for how long and, 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 and where are they going? That was never implemented under George W. Bush. 
but spying, raw domestic spying was. Mm -hmm. So I would rather sit in there and say, okay, keep your freedom, make sure that, uh, you know, the FBI or a local police department need to still get a warrant to spy on people. That would not hurt us, but making sure we have something like real ID would actually help us. You can still make bad decisions. You know, you're not gonna, there's never gonna be a point where I defend the presidency of George W. Bush. So, and I'm gonna be irrationally angry talking about him. <laughs> well, so a couple of things. I don't wanna debate you the whole time. I'm happy to, but I want, you're my guest. I wanna ask you questions because you're- But do you understand what I'm saying? Is that know, yeah. Yeah, you can still, just because they are quote unquote conservative saying, I'm yeah. doing conservative things, does not mean they're actually doing smart things. So like you could say stupid, very stupid things. You know, yeah. so here, here's here's where I would say um, I'll give you one quick example and you can respond or, or not. Um, I would say I am I am a pro death penalty advocate. Right. Okay. That, that being said, I'm a uh, I'm not a guru here. I'm a little concerned that our justice system doesn't always meet a proper standard to put people to death. Okay. 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 Um, especially when you look at some of this, you know, with the uh, oh, what's the project they do now? They go back and do the DNA stuff. Um, mm. So to me, there's a discussion there about how you implement the death penalty and how you move towards that. And the solution—I'm not saying this, but hypothetically—the solution might be you pause death penalty for a period of time until we can agree that we are meeting a high standard. Because if you're going to kill someone, capital punishment, it better be a high, high threshold. That's my—that'd be my belief. Um, with conservative politics. It's not that they have to always hit the mark. It's that I'm not sure that that conservatives actually have a spot to where they're going. It seems a lot of time they're reactionary to things. Um, and so it's like, OK, well, well, I, I'm not saying that so to your wall example, there might be a scenario in which I'd say, OK, well, I can agree potentially with the wall because we're actually going here. Um, but a lot of times they feel like it's just like, hey, here's a policy. This is conservative. We're going to do it. It's like, well, I don't know where we're going. So there's no way I can agree with this because it can go the wrong way really quickly. So I'll right. I agree. I, I understand what you're saying. And I write about that constantly. I say, you know, I consult for a living, as everyone on Twitter knows now. Um, I consult for a living and I consult candidates. And I always tell candidates, if you are in charge of whatever government body you're running for, mayor, city council, mm -hmm. governor, president, send whatever the hell it is what would america look like differently in 10 years than it does now and if you cannot tell me without using the words freedom liberty and free market then i don't want to hear it <laughs> don't give me buzzwords that don't mean anything Huey long was an immensely corrupt governor of louisiana immensely corrupt had a vision every child gets a textbook and doesn't have to pay for it and there are roads throughout the state, which there were at the time, there was like a hundred miles of roads with the entire state. Everything else was just gravel and it would take hours and hours to drive, you know, anywhere and you bust all these flat tires, whatever. I just write a book on him. So I'm thinking about it. Um, you would want the ethics of what someone's vision is to be ethical towards your values. And that is a reasonable understanding and a reasonable defense to have but you want to see where they are going. What is their vision? And that is absolutely, I agree, a problem with the Republican Party and the conservative movement as a whole now. What is their vision? And I think that the quote unquote new right, um, when they say things like when um, uh, he's running for US Senate in Arizona, and of course his name just slipped my mind. Um, uh, the, the tech guy from Teal, um, Blake Masters. When Blake Masters says he wants to make it a, when he wants to make an economy where you can you can live a middle class life on a one person income, 
that is a vision that is a goal that everyone can understand when someone sits there and says if someone wanted to say hey i want to revive rural parts of states by building um light rail to town centers of dying towns and connect them with big cities so you don't have to live in houston or dallas or austin you can live in the most rural parts of counties that's a vision and you hope that that vision is carried out ethically mm-hmm. in the most responsible way um but a lot of times the biggest problem republican politicians have is they don't have a vision agreed okay with that being said can the gop survive we got midterms coming up there's a lot of debate it seems like um you know, how Trump is going to, what role he might play, not necessarily running, but who he's going to support. I saw today Dan Crenshaw was getting heckled at some event because he was saying that there was no election election fraud. And this I guy support was- always Dan Crenshaw being heckled for any reason whatsoever. <laughs> so I am absolutely okay with it. I don't care if I agree with him or disagree with him. Dan, Dan Crenshaw should be heckled out of Washington. <laughs> so, so can the GOP survive? What's your thoughts? Um, can it survive... Uh, like in the next election cycle, I think I think they're going to do really well in this election cycle. I think they're going to win. Um, can it survive long term? Probably not. Um, I don't think. I don't. I think the better question is: Does America survive long term? Um, then can the GOP survive long term? Um, you know, we are very fastly. If you've read Pappy Cannon's "Will America Survive Till 20, uh, 2025, I think the name of the book was 2045, 2045, 2025, something like that. Um, there are real fundamental problems in this country right now that make us look like we are heading towards the path of being Brazil in real fundamental ways. Um, politicians who just can't get stuff done even like infrastructure bill that just passed what a waste of an infrastructure i'm the biggest advocate for infrastructure i've been writing about it for 10 years that was a joke of a bill it's literally just a slush fund for senators and then a bunch of um you know partisan issues that got a couple hundred billion dollars here and there but there was no grand vision of how to fix infrastructure if you know if Donald Trump could rewind the tape and could actually execute something, and rather than doing the tax cut and try and repeal Obamacare, had he said, let's create an infrastructure policy that really looks at rural America, the parts of America that voted for me and voted for Republicans every single election by overwhelming numbers, the parts of America that are truly dying. They're, they're physically dying. There are less people living there every single year um, no one wants to move there. There's no jobs going there. How do we get Erie County, Pennsylvania, or Mahoning County, Ohio, or you know parts of parts of Michigan, um, parts of, of Texas? How do we how do we revive their economies? It's not that the labor laws are so expensive that they can't compete with China. That's not it. Um, it's not that tax law is that bad because more tech more manufacturing jobs moving to california than to to ohio which is far cheaper laws both on on labor and on regulation no the question was was that it's not desirable when apple wanted to move to move to um columbus ohio they couldn't because the internet was so bad they said we'd have to invest too much money to sit there and even make this happen so rather than looking at the states that voted for him looking at the areas that voted for him and saying how do we improve 
infrastructure and have a public-private partnership that's going to complement industries. Let's sit there and say the government makes if the government had two go had two goals: improve infrastructure and bring home supply chains, something that overwhelming numbers of Americans agree with. And then he partnered that by saying, okay, we're going to penalize companies that make our military and our medicine overseas to bring those vital industries home. How do I couple that with making sure not only they're going to come home, but they're not going to go to California or they're not going to go to Texas. They're not going to go to Austin. They're not going to go to the place that all the other companies are going. They're going to go to these 50 counties in the Midwest that are dying. What do they need to go there? How do I make sure those companies that is a desirable location? How do I team infrastructure up with improving job creation in parts of the country that are voting Republican and are dying? That vision was never there. And it's not there with his last infrastructure bill, because all it's going to do is allow every senator to walk around their state saying, this is the Susan Collins highway to nowhere. That is not going to be the that's not going to be or this or, you know, this is going to be the. Paul Cassidy Bridge, like that's not, yes, all those repairs are needed, but you have to think larger. China is, our competitors are, but, you know, our leadership just, they're, you know, retarded. I mean, that's just what they are. They're retarded. You mentioned and, and, and I don't mean to insult mentally handicapped people. They're better off than most of the politicians. You mentioned, um, you know, will we used to be a country? And so in 2015 16 i don't know um somewhere around then i remember kind of talking about the error of the large nation state and how it's 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 got problems coming now this is before brexit before trump won you know just kind of looking at the land because i remember looking going why do i i lived in louisiana at the time i'm from louisiana originally so the huey long part of louisiana uh, you know where duck dynasty is bunder west monroe i was just in louisiana yeah i know where west monroe yeah, was yeah. So, yeah. i lived there for the first 30 years of my life basically um anyways um I remember just looking around, going, "Why in Northeast Louisiana do I want someone from San Francisco to rule over me with their policies, or someone from Maine, or someone like? And why do they want me to rule over them? The concept of this large, especially where we're at, a very expansive nation state that covers so much ground and it's so many different cultures and stuff. I, I felt like it was, you know, um, not for long. And I didn't mean like next five years, like you know, twenty, thirty years, that we can start seeing problems. Now, it, obviously, it's gone a lot quicker than that." Um, but can we get to a spot to where we can agree that, you know, where I sit now, which is in Hood County, Texas, you know, what we want in Hood County, Texas is just not what they want in San Francisco. And I'm not trying to make a judgment on who's right and wrong. It's just a fact that they have a different. Culture. I understand your, your defense of regionalism and federalism. I, and I, in a perfect world. Yeah. But no, we're never going to come to that because the people in San Francisco want to rule over you. Right. So, so the question then is, I agree that we won't come to that because it doesn't seem so. Then where do we? And by go? the people, people in Texas don't want don't want a lot of what they, they to a certain degree they don't believe they want to rule over people in San Francisco. Probably so. I mean, I'm saying like red state America values do want to rule over blue state America values. It is an equal thing. I think that, and I'm I live in a blue state. I've lived in a blue state basically my entire life. I do not believe I would love a, a law that banned drag queen story hour for children. I don't believe you should sexualize children. A lot of people in red state America believe that that should be a law too. Uh, I would; uh, those are times I would like red state values to over to over, you know, to take on blue state values. And likewise, there are certain blue state values, like eating kale, is not going to be terrible for you. That I wish were imported into red states. Um, um, 
you know, I think there are certain things that, 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 you know, that, uh, that would be beneficial for, m you know, more control over people. The problem is, is that every institution is people of that San Francisco mindset mindset and they do want to rule over you they don't want you to have your own regional opinions or regional values because they hate them and they think that they're backwards and they will never come to a place and every time going back to libertarians voting in texas every time that you sit there and take a moralistic approach and not that every republican is great because most of them suck but every democrat sucks um you know, as and my friend Ann Coulter always says, there's a lot of bad Republicans and there are no good Democrats. It's basically <laughs> the truth. Um, maybe like a city councilman somewhere is good or something, but that other than that, it's not good. Um, you, if you don't, if you if you sit there and say, I'm going to sit on my hands and knees. If you look like if you live like me, if you live in a blue city in a blue state. And you hate the Republican, you want to vote for Libertarians. All right, our vote doesn't matter anyway. Do whatever the hell you want to do. I've done that. But if I lived in a state that is looking out into the abyss, I would sit there and say, hmm, what, what responsibility do I have? And once you lose power, a uh, political party loses power, it is very likely that it's very hard in many cases for them ever to regain it, ever. Mm -hmm. You're probably never going to, you're never going to regain it back because you're of the opinion that there is this large population of people that are swinging, you know, oh, I'll change my mind. That population is very small now and it's getting smaller and smaller by the day. Um, and that is just, that's just the truth. I mean, that is, you know, I'm thinking about writing this article and this will probably be getting me a shit ton of hate mail. Um, but I'm thinking about writing an article that the decline in the white voters is the decline of swing voters. Because Hispanic swing, but not by very much. There's not a whole huge chunk of Hispanic swing. It may be six or seven points. Black voters is a swing vote of maybe two or three points. But for white voters, a swing is like, you know, 10, 15 points. And without, with the declining white population means you have a declining swing vote. It's just that it'll just be one way or the other. And it'll probably mostly just one way. Yeah. So, you know, if, if I had lived in a swing state for either of the, Trump elections, I would have given Trump a lot. You do live in a swing state. <laughs> you just don't know it yet. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> it, it's, it's getting closer. Uh, I, I, I think... And it's I, not I, getting closer. It's there. It's, it's there. a okay. five-point state. Let me, let me rephrase. I was telling people prior to the election, like, hey, if you look at how Beto performed in the midterms, he got more votes than Hillary. Like, I wonder what's going to happen here. And folks are like, oh, you're crazy. I'm like, I don't know. Like, you know, we're going to look at this thing moving forward. It could get um, purple. Uh, as, I'm not as pessimistic as you are, but listen, the midterms are coming up. Abbott's up, and he's got he's going to get primaried by several Republicans, and so we'll see. Yeah, I met a few of them to consult for them, um, yeah. and I I've been to Texas many. My one of my best friends lives in Dallas, and um, I've been to Texas many many times. But let me tell you, that cliff that jumps into the abyss that's getting you guys a lot closer, and you know, Abbott running around saying how great it is to lure all these businesses from California and bring all their California workers and all the great greatness of mass diversity from El Salvador and Guatemala. You're importing voters who hate you and who never want you to have any political power ever, 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 ever. And you're importing them in America and you're importing them from overseas. Um, uh, and I mean, you're literally making your own coffin and saying how great it is that we all have jobs. So you mentioned immigration. You, you were pro-wall. What is your thoughts on what should be good immigration policy? 
Right now, we need a full federal immigration moratorium for probably 30 years. Um, we, we need maybe 100,000 immigrants a year, only if they have extremely desirable skills. Um, and, and this is because of demographics or because of cultural? Demographics are part of it. Cultural is part of it. But if you look at the history of the United States, any great wave of migration is always met with a great cooling of migration. Um, we did that in the 1920s to the 1970s, uh, 1960s. Uh, really, the 70s, actually, by the time it really picked up was the 70s. It was a half a century. Um, we had many, many periods of cooling. Um, uh, demographically, I mean, that's that's its own thing. That's not going to really matter because immigration is whites don't have children that, that much anymore. Um, uh, but neither does anybody else, actually, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, no one's having kids. But the 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 bigger problem is culturally certain cultures are very hard to assimilate my family's culture is very hard to assimilate i'm italian it took italians literally half a century to assimilate out of them and that was when americana the pro um pro assimilation wing of the of, of the country was in at its height you know when my great great grandparents refused to speak italian to their children so they wouldn't learn it um that does not happen now um that sense of patriotism remember i mean when we went to war with germany in 1917 something like 80 percent of all german newspapers flipped to english the next year because they didn't want they had a sense of patriotic patriotic duty that they were going to be printing in not in german but in english if we went to war with mexico right now i can promise you telemundo is not going to switch to an english language station there is no sense of duty, cultural duty whatsoever. Um, I think duty is actually probably one of the most underprivileged values that we have in this country is what our sense of duty and oath is to each other and to our, and to our nation. Um, and I think that assimilation is extremely important. I think for the working class, uh, an immigration moratorium is very, very important, especially as the cost of land, the cost of, of renting a home, buying your first home becomes extremely more expensive. I mean, people sit there and libertarians especially complain all the time about the zoning laws. Um, but importing 40 million people in 25 years definitely jacks up the price of, of owning a home. Um, and I think that at this time, especially when the economy is changing so much, we don't need a 21st century economy based on the immigration beliefs of the, I mean, when, when Johnson supported it, it was a 19th century belief on immigration. We have a 19th century immigration for a 21st century economy. It's not good for us politically. It's not good for us culturally. Um, if you want to look at the cultural segments of it, um, mass diversity is the worst element you could add to social trust. I mean, I cite this in my book. If you read it, there's been dozens and dozens and dozens of studies. When, um, when in Angola, when people from when Congolese were moving into Angola at such a high capacity, the Angolans deported like half a million Congolese because so much diversity was going to be bad for their country, and they're all African. I mean, most people cannot tell someone from Congo, but someone from Angola. It's not a matter of race. It's a matter of, of, yeah. of mass diversity. It's really, really, really bad on such a broad scale. It destroys and depletes social trust and also depletes people's interest in investing in social capital. People are less interested in actually providing for their neighbor and actually investing long term into a place when they don't feel connected to that place. Yeah, I do think that most Americans 
um, don't realize what immigration talks are outside of the U.S. And so that kind of gives them a distorted view if you go to spots in Africa or China or whatever and how they talk about immigration. It's They're a lot more free to have these conversations in the U.S. It's like either you're the worst person or you're the greatest. Oh, what I just said was probably a really spicy, spicy hot take for oh, a lot of people. Yeah, it, it, but well – you know, we had on uh, some immigration uh, expert a few episodes back, and I just kind of said, you know, it's, it's frustrating that you can't talk about this without either being, you know, either uh, racist, a, a racist yeah. or, a, or a socialist or a communist. And listen, some I'm Sicilian, aren't I black? I mean, like, I can say whatever I want to say. <laughs> well, so the one thing I did want to say, though, is to your point about libertarians, you can blame us for some of our ideas, but you can't blame us for implementing the policies. That's all on you guys. So we, we can't take any ales for what's happened. We no, but when, when the margin of error in many close election is the libertarian vote, you do have fantasies of mass murder, like flood your brain constantly. And you can't fault me for that. Like, I literally, I mean, when you sit there and a national holiday could be like a catapult of a libertarian to Mexico day, you sit there and say to yourself, this is not a bad idea. When that's the margin in like Wisconsin and Arizona and Georgia, and you're like, God, this would be a better country without libertarians and like believing that they have some kind of you know power in this world. We don't. We don't have any power. I know, but then don't vote like you do. I mean, like that's the thing. Just stop voting so shitty. Like it's like it's like women. Like I would respect you more if you didn't vote so badly all the time. Like you really thought the lady in the pantsuit who heckled was a was the you know the voice of truth and light in this world? Like get a freaking clue, people. I mean, y'all ran John McCain and Mitt Romney. It's hard. I to- did not vote for. I wait, I did vote for John McCain because I was 19 years old and I thought, oh well, you know, I don't like Obama, so I vote for McCain. Mm-hmm. I and I really liked Sarah Palin. I thought that I really enjoyed her. I did not vote for Mitt Romney, but I didn't live in a in a purple state. I voted for Chuck Baldwin, I think. I don't know. I voted for the Constitution Party. There you go. I can do that because my vote really doesn't matter. If you live in a purple state, I don't think yeah, just fall in line and shut the hell up. <laughs> Gary Johnson was never gonna be president. Like the man didn't know where he's like he looked like he fell out of a building all the time. Like he looked like he just came out of falling out of a building. Let like green party people think that their vote matters don't sit there and, and imagine that you're going to have some kind of you know moral integrity by voting for you know i don't know the green party candidate what the, the 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 who was the libertarian party candidate last time joe jorgensen joe okay yeah yes i didn't vote for joe i didn't vote for joe who did you vote for i voted for the most qualified person i know you're gonna hate what? me on to this who myself <laughs> catapult me to mexico every man a king i guess i don't know but like that is that good good for you i hope you really and you know good for you you know when biden sits there and floods your state with ebola from angola and all those other places listen i really hope you enjoy that proud vote you had for yourself my vote wasn't gonna get trump trump had texas oh gracious no he barely had texas though but it's the same thing in arizona it's the same thing in georgia the same thing in in wisconsin yeah he won them but it was like he he won texas but he lost those states Mm. by the libertarian vote you think so? You think that's the? You think that's look the at the math. I'm not making this up. I will literally pull it up right now. In Wisconsin, I guarantee you it was the Libertarian vote. 
if my computer decided to work right now, I would tell you this. No, it was, I'm going to look this up right now. Um, the presidential election in 2020. I mean, that's what decided George W. Bush as president. I mean, honestly, was enough people voting for enough black people voting for Pat Buchanan in Florida. Um, and where the hell is the libertarians? Libertarians. There is Georgenson. Uh, in Wisconsin, Trump got Trump missed by twenty thousand votes. The Libertarian got thirty-eight thousand five hundred. So thank you, Libertarians, for your honest vote. You probably voted for Ryan on the other side. <laughs> Listen, listen, if I'd have gotten 38,000 in Wisconsin, I'd be a lot more happy. But yeah, you know, I didn't poll well in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't on your newsletter. That's why I was reading. I was like, wait. That's true. That's true. And then newsletter. Okay. We got eight minutes left. So I know we're good the clock. So, real quick, you broke an important story I thought last year with the smugness this of year. Wilson. Was it this year? Lincoln Project? Yeah. Okay. God, it was January. Okay. It was January. Mm hmm. So Lincoln Project, the smugness of Rick Wilson. I was glad to see those guys take a hit. For people who don't know, what happened with the Lincoln Project? Uh, what was the story? Because it kind of it didn't get the coverage it should have gotten. I mean, we did ultimately, but they didn't, you know. I mean, I was on a lot of news shows. I got a lot of good positive coverage from that. It, but it, okay, it was, wasn't if it was a Republican group. Oh, I mean, oh, I would be on the cover of Time magazine. Right. Yes. Uh, I would be like one of those like dancing nurses in, uh, in uh, what you call it, in TikTok. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, being celebrated as a hero. The So the, so, uh, so the Lincoln Project, the anti-Trump, anti-Republican, former Republican group, raised close to $100 million last year to campaign against Trump and Senate Republicans. They lost every race they campaigned in, except for, I think, um, except for Donald Trump's, but they played a very minimal part in that. It became a giant grift, and one of their co-founders, John Weaver, was approaching young men, promising them jobs for sex, um, giving them internships in many cases, and um and john weaver ultimately was then soliciting underage men um and uh i broke the first story there was many stories that broke afterwards but i broke the first story that he was approaching underage men about um jobs for sex and how unethical that was and they were hiring the pen that he was approaching and promising jobs for and it was at the time that i wrote it it was probably like 15 sources i think now we probably have close to 200 sources yeah i remember watching that and just kind of it was interesting because I had some, I had a lot of people kind of send me the Lincoln Project stuff, and I didn't think their stuff was that great, but whatever. Um, during the, the election, and then to kind of see, because they were they were a very arrogant, very smug group. You mm -hmm. know? Oh yeah, kind of see that that come back. They on still them. are. They still are smug. Right, and so what, what's what's ultimately going to happen with those guys? Because um, I think the most telling clip of um, Rick Wilson and then that guy from was it Harvard or whatever they were on Don show and they're like oh them uh them uh <clears throat> them ukraines and they're talking about libertarians mainly but they were talking about republicans too. <laughs> no they were talking about red state voters <laughs> and they're like you like reading and oh yeah they were mocking yeah. red state voters yeah. being these are the people by the way that they campaign for for decades so really right. show you how they actually feel by the way i'm not going to say his name but i went to I went to a meeting one time with the Club for Growth people, and there was one staffer there. And I'll, I'll say this is all alleged, even though it was 100% and did happen because I was there. And I said, oh, I've been to this state. I forget what state I mentioned, maybe Iowa or New Hampshire. I don't know what state we we're talking about, but I've been there. So it's a lovely state. And he said, no, it's not. It's garbage. And like he's like, and he didn't say like he didn't say this, but he didn't say he didn't say most red states are garbage. But the states that he said were garbage all happened to be red states. 
uh, in middle America. And I was like, oh, this is a broad DC consultant world thing. I'm just thinking the worst of um, the country. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. What will happen with them? They still raise $6 million. Look, as long as there's drunk Antifa wine moms, Cabernet wine moms drinking, there will always be a place for the Lincoln Project because they're, you know, fighting against fascism that's growing. And don't you know that the, the QAnon shaman is about to be the president of the United States at any given moment? We are just days away from a possible <laughs> QAnon shaman overthrow of the longest running democracy in the history of the world. So as we close here, let me recap. You would fix this country. You talk about what your vision would be. Ryan's vision would be is A, to catapult libertarians in Mexico, install the shaman, and to end the Antifa wine moms. Like those three things. Replace the shaman with an immigration moratorium and you have a fabulous country. <laughs> Stopping Antifa wine moms and catapulting libertarians from Mexico and catapulting them to Mexico and having an immigration moratorium, you have an instantly 50% better country. <laughs> Okay, I can, I can respect that. I can respect that. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for doing this. I enjoyed it, even though you had to slum down here with the Libertarian for the day. Uh, <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> I appreciate this. Where can people find you? Because you have a book we mentioned. You also have a Substack or a new website, ryangerdusky.com. You can subscribe to the Substack. It's $6 a month. And I do like real deep dives into politics and policy and people and, you know, election stuff. And I give the week, uh, the, well, every week I have a news, the newsletter is, all the news around the globe that's from a national populist perspective um i have uh i have that i have the book they're not listening you know anywhere you want even amazon they haven't banned me yet um and on twitter or or facebook or wherever on my website ryan and he does take libertarian dollars just for i do i will take it i'm i am a whore for hire i'm like a hooker in heat i'll take it from anybody <laughs> well ryan thank you so much and for listeners we'll talk to you next time